Hello everyone, I hope you're having a wonderful day. My name is Henry Jaspers and today you're listening to TechFest Talks, a podcast run by students for students, for people who are passionate about looking after our planet. The question of the energy transition has been in the news in many ways recently, with the National Grid having taken a record 67 days without coal last year, and more recently, both the upcoming COP26 Climate Summit taking place in Glasgow and the first Earthshock Prize taking place. With this in mind, please welcome today's guest, petroleum and renewables engineer, Graeme Dallas. Hi, Graeme. Thank you for agreeing to be interviewed today. So how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. It's the, uh, as we're recording this, it's the end of a very busy week nearly, and uh, yeah, it's good fun. Really busy, which is great. Fantastic. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing at the moment? Certainly. My day job is I'm business development manager for Aqualis Braemar LOC. Now, we are a marine and energy consultancy. So we actually work in traditional oil and gas markets, but we've also been involved in renewable energy for almost 20 years now. And we have quite a presence in maritime and commercial shipping. I'm involved in a lot of different things. As I say, traditional oil and gas work. We are marine engineers mainly, so um, if it's uh, on a vessel or a floating uh, structure, we're often involved. Oh, brilliant. And that lends itself to offshore wind and tidal projects as well. Another element of the business is uh, shipping in maritime. Now, that's everything from we design small craft. We are currently designing a hydrogen-powered ferry for um, the Scottish government, essentially. It's part of the High Seas 3 development, so this will be the first ocean-going hydrogen-powered ferry in Europe. So that's quite exciting to be involved with. Fantastic. So what do you feel are the most substantial obstacles which need to be overcome to make the injured transition take place? That's a tough question. That really is. Um, I think we all understand we need to decarbonise things. Um, We need to ideally stop burning fossil fuels. So we all understand that. I think there needs to be a better perception of what energy transition actually is and what it means and wherewithal to reach that. Um, We're obviously on a path to net zero. Now, in, in my opinion... Net zero and energy transition are two significantly different things, but they are often interchanged as the same word. Yeah. Net zero is is um, certainly from a, let's take from an offshore context, um, we, we need to produce uh, fossil fuels and oil and gas in a less carbon intensive manner. So we need to consider electrifying some of the, uh, the systems offshore. An area I'm involved in, to service an offshore facility, we're uh, trundling backwards and forwards with largely diesel powered ships so we can decarbonize the ships um we can bolt on hybrid systems to uh, reduce the carbon output of the ship um and going forward with new builds we can build hybrid powered ships and hopefully the ideal is either ammonia or hydrogen powered ships that's brilliant and it's really it's really looking at the whole picture not just looking at uh, things in isolation absolutely from within the petroleum industry and your experience in that do you think you think a sea change towards renewable energies and do you think enough is being done? Um, there, there is there is a sea change. Um, it's it's a double whammy, really. Um, Aberdeen being predominant in oil and gas for the last forty years, um, and and oil and gas is a cyclical industry. Um, market conditions tends to dictate activity and business. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when the global pandemic came along eighteen months ago, the oil price was hit instantly because largely reduction in travel. No, absolutely. Yeah, jet fuel and Shipping is one of the major uses uses of fuel. So the price goes down, the demand goes down, um, and that reduces budgets and uh, expenditure for offshore projects, whether that's new builds or modification. Yeah, so that all happened um, at the same time as lockdown. So it really was a, a double whammy. Um, yeah. 
not that the industry wasn't looking at renewables anyway, because it's been gaining momentum for a number of years. And certainly I've in various jobs, I've been looking at renewables and involved to a degree for the last five or six years. And it's been recently recognised that Royal Dutch Shell and many other of the fellow oil companies were actually aware of the effect of their actions on the climate since the 1980s. But they continue to deny their actions. Um, why wasn't the change enacted earlier towards renewable energies when they knew this was the case? That's a tricky question. We could have many, multiple answers. Go ahead, choose one. This is just simply my opinion. Um, big business is is just that. It's big business. Absolutely. The sole purpose of a large company is to deliver value to the shareholder. That's largely the only purpose of a large company existing. What they what they do, manufacture, produce, sell or service is almost secondary to reduce to returning value to the shareholder because without shareholders you haven't got investment you haven't got uh, expenditure and you can't do things to make more value to the shareholders um interesting okay this is this is simply my opinion considering the necessity for rapid change toward renewable energy do you also think there's a future for people in my generation to go into career in petroleum engineering and secondly do you think there should be Yes, in both instances. Um, outside my day job, I'm also the chair of the Aberdeen section of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. So I'm quite invested in that side as well. And I speak to a lot of students and school children about careers in the industry. And I, I speak to a lot of newly graduated petroleum engineers. And, you know, they, they I was waiting to use the phrase open a newspaper, which is a bit of an old phrase these days. But, they, you know, they look online, look at the press and they think, oh, this is my industry that I've spent a lot of years learning and I want to uh, want to get involved. There's still a future. Um, but why should there be? Well, oil and gas will play a major part in uh, the energy mix for a good number of years yet. And even when we stop using it as a fuel, oil and gas is um, a critical feedstock for a huge amount of things. I mean, I'm sitting at a desk here at home and the monitor's got a lot of plastic in it, which is derived from oil. Um, and virtually everything around me has some sort of uh, petroleum input into its manufacture. But should there are alternatives to that? Uh, there are alternatives, agreed. Which are both cheaper and better for the environment. I will take your word for that. So why should we continue with petroleum? Is it a dying industry? Dying's perhaps a bit strong. Um, different part of the world has different uses for petroleum. Um we are, uh, I mean, currently where we are at the moment with our energy mix, gas is still a large part of our generation of electricity. And even then, we still import gas from mainland Europe and further afield. So, yes, we've got huge boom and growth in uh, renewable energy. And again, in Scotland specifically. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Yes, I think it was a few days this year we have been arguably on paper 100% supplied by renewable energy. But, you know, we know the challenges with wind. It's not consistent and it's not predictable. So that's always a challenge. And gas is always there to switch on quickly. Okay. I think occasionally in the UK, there are still coal-fired power stations operating. Now, if you look at the carbon intensity of um, coal in comparison to uh, North Sea and natural gas, it, it's significant. So we need to transition, as we've been talking about, but we need to look at the most polluting things first. No, absolutely, yeah. I actually spoke to an economist a few years back and... And what was their view on the matter? Well, his opinion was, um, if, if you look around the world, there are still large sections of the world in Southeast Asia and things like that, that coal is their main fuel source for heating and cooking. If you can change all these people onto natural gas, you would reduce the carbon output significantly. I can't remember the figures he used. Interesting. And his opinion was, where are we going to find all this gas to decarbonize the you know, large, huge parts and billions of people in the world who are relying on coal because it's readily available and it's cheap. 
On that note, how can low middle income countries be given access to green energy? And secondly, how can we reduce the green premium required to do this? Um, green technologies, it's interesting just watching over the last 10 years or so, the technology has reduced in price significantly because we're getting uh, efficiencies in design and we're getting the economies of scale. If you look at just even um, domestic solar panels, 10, 15 years ago, they were pretty expensive. There was, okay, there was uh, subsidies available to help you install them on your house, but it took a long time to break even financially. No, I understand, yeah. Nowadays, solar panels are, dare I say it, relatively cheap, relatively, I'll use that word carefully, um, and the, the payback time is much shorter. And it, it's possible now to uh, install solar panels on your home with uh, with zero subsidy, and, and you get a return after less than it was before. I can't remember the exact numbers the last time I checked it. And these technologies are being deployed worldwide. Uh, each part of the world has an almost a different strategy for renewable energy. Fantastic. Depending on what their landscape is. You know, for instance, wind is good on the west coast of large land masses. No, absolutely, of course. Another part of something we do in our business, we're quite involved with, uh, with solar power as well. And again, if you look at large countries like United States, you've got large flat states with very low population and it's almost desert. So it's no use for arable land or for living. So cover it in solar panels. What is the history of renewable technology and how long have these alternatives been known about? Have any exciting research been conducted more recently in this area? And what do you think is the future of this? Renewable energy is not new. Um, if, I don't know how many hundreds of years you go back, but you had um, used wind power for windmills. They were all over the world. Um, mills and factories were powered by water. Your big water wheel outside would run all the run all the uh, the equipment. Of course. So it's not a new thing. And essentially, in the in the invention of uh, originally steam power and uh, steam engines and then moving on to uh, combustion engines we moved away from renewables if you like because it was more efficient and they could up the productivity of their factories um absolutely leaving the environmental impact aside because arguably 100 years ago we didn't understand that fully interesting okay the government has recently proposed a 10-point plan for the green revolution including advancement of offshore wind and green hydrogen carbon capture technology do you see their plans as feasible in the short term? Um, most plans I've seen around uh, these sites of things, they are ambitious. They need to be ambitious. There are so many plans and ideas and things uh, which I, I fully hope we can execute them all. We need to execute them all because you know we seriously need to start moving this um, moving this mix and to de decarbonize our lifestyles. No, absolutely. I think they are achievable. It will take significant investment in equipment and people of course um already in the in the offshore industry there's there's a distinct lack of skills and distinct lack of people because the industries haven't been very good at uh at training and, and bringing new people into the industries as you mentioned earlier is oil and gas dying leaving that argument aside there hasn't been a huge amount of investment and building up of skills and workforce because it has been in decline now that there's a new technology which requires some of these offshore skills, and it's it's not specific to renewables, but it's 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 crews that work ships and work boats. Um, it's folks that can work offshore and have these skills. These people are in short supply, and that's that's one of the challenges we're going to have, which is 
maybe not prevalent in some of these uh, these plans and ambitions. On that subject, how can we deal with gender inequity in the oil and gas sector? Yes, our oil and gas sector historically hasn't been good in that way. There are a lot of good initiatives, and initiatives isn't enough, admittedly. Are they working? They are working in places. Why isn't enough being done overall? There's an argument that diversity and inclusion of everything, it's not just a gender thing or a race thing, it's it's diversity of thought is quite often the, the phrase used. Now, the worst thing, in my opinion, you can do is put quotas in. Now, I don't think anyone likes quotas because you then have uh, preferential treatment or the opposite of that because you're trying to reach a quota. The real thing is an understanding and getting the industries to appreciate why it needs to be done, what the benefits are, and it's, it's it's good for everyone. If you've got a team of 10 people who all think exactly the same from the same background and the same culture, you will always get the same answer. It's interesting. Okay. If you've got a diverse team, you get much more. You get a much more rich uh, debate and discussion, and you get the benefit of of lots of different ideas, which ultimately will result in a better solution to whatever challenge you're working on. And historically, why has the sector been so hostile to women in the industry? That's a tough question to answer. Well, what would your answer be? I haven't worked in the offshore industry, but I've heard the I've heard the stories, and I've spoken to many people. They're disgraceful, actually. Yeah. So, how can we rectify it? It truly is. And why do they happen? Education and culture change is required. And what we need to do in a lot of instances is because our industry tends to be imbalanced on a gender basis, we need to convince and encourage and coach the current leaders who will typically be males, because that's historically what it's been. We need to encourage these people to drive it from the top down. No, absolutely. And we need to hold people accountable if instances such as these are occurring. Well, we know they're occurring. We hear about them frequently, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. Um, on a slightly different note, considering that 71% of climate change is accounted for by only 100 companies, which many of which have worked in collaboration with Acre Solutions, which I understand where you once held a senior role, how can we hold such companies accountable for the damage that they have continued to cause? I'm not sure how to answer that one. I mean, I did formally work with Acker Solutions. Um, you'll also be aware that there are Acker Offshore Wind, Acker Carbon Capture and Storage. Um, they've actually been pioneers in in renewable energy, and they uh, they actually created, I think, still the world's biggest carbon capture and storage facility. It's been running in Norway for about 15 years, I think. They've been it's been running now. Does that compensate for the damage they've caused in the oil sector? looking at the larger picture i think sometimes interesting okay it's again again it's the it's the overall picture how is the is the environmental impact calculated total carbon emissions i would presume if it's positive carbon then that's damage yeah i'm afraid i haven't got enough information to to, to comment on that one fully okay with the recent rollout of the hydrogen fuel cell buses in aberdeen how can we use renewable energies further in our transport and also in local stakeholders yeah, the, the the hydrogen bus trial was an excellent trial, and there are other trials going around the UK at the moment. Fantastic. That proved the concept and feasibility of a hydrogen bus. The downside of that was the way the hydrogen was produced for these buses, which was arguably more impactful, because basically to create the hydrogen for the buses in Aberdeen, they used electricity from the grid, which was largely created by burning gas. It just displaces it rather than... <laughs> it just moves it. Yeah, and I'd... I, you know, arguably that's that's an electric car. Yes, it's zero emission at um, while you're driving it, but it's not zero emission, if you like. Okay. Hydrogen is, I believe, um, going to be not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. It's going to solve a few problems, a lot of problems. 
Um, it's how we produce the hydrogen. No, absolutely. I mean, we've been, we've been producing hydrogen and using it in an industry for 100, 100 years, maybe longer. You know, we used to put it in airships, which history says that wasn't such a good idea, but uh, it used to be done. So it's, it's, it's how we create the hydrogen. And there's a whole spectrum of colours of hydrogen from green being the, the completely zero emission and moving down through blue, red, pink, brown, grey, and I think there's a couple of others, depending on how it's manufactured. The ideal is, gray, is green hydrogen, obviously. Absolutely. Blue hydrogen is a is an interesting concept. Again, we were talking about these uh, oil and gas wells. If we use renewable energy to uh, reform the natural gas into hydrogen, and we can pipe the hydrogen ashore, and the byproduct is carbon dioxide, which we can put back into the oil and gas reservoir safely for eternity. In the life cycle of many green technologies, as you mentioned, it can take many years to offset the carbon emissions required to make them in the first place. How can we reckon with this? Yeah, it's it, 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 it's a difficult one to... It, it's almost like you've got to break the cycle to do something different. Uh, and that's kind of... Arguably, our lifestyles are as such. It takes a, a, a network break to do things differently. There's a lot of ambition and talk to do it, but talking about it and doing it is two different things. No, I understand. And it's difficult for a group of individuals or a small proportion of society to do it. It needs to be done by everyone to, to be able to achieve that. Universally, yeah. Yeah. The economy of Aberdeen has once been known as the oil capital of Europe, has become increasingly reliant on the petroleum economy. How can you make our city's name in the renewables business? And are you optimistic about whether we can turn our economy around in this way? Uh, yes, I am optimistic. Um, there's a lot of skills and capability in Aberdeen. There's a lot of um, fantastic engineers and scientists and energy professionals. Fantastic. Um, yes, uh, Aberdeen was reliant on the oil and gas industry because it was a very major industry and it was very good to the city. The oil and gas industry, as we've discussed, is, is in decline. It is, in the public eyes, um, an unwanted industry. Now, that can be debated for a number of reasons. But yes, I think Aberdeen can successfully uh, convert itself to an end. What are the benefits of petroleum industry in Aberdeen? It uh, it provides a lot of employment for a lot of people. Initially, it keeps the electricity running. Again, we've we've got we can't circuit break. We can't just stop using oil and gas and get electricity from somewhere else. It just doesn't work. So we need to manage it sustainably. So that's what I said. The net zero and energy transition are completely different things. We've been energy transitioning for hundreds of years. We transitioned from coal to natural gas in the sixties. We transitioned onto nuclear in the fifties and sixties. It's a continuing cycle. We are now transitioning to sustainable and renewable energy sources. As I say, oil and gas, we probably need to stop burning it. I completely agree with that. Someone told me that 30 years ago. The worst thing you can do with petroleum is burn it. It's such a, such a valuable commodity. You can make so many things from it. Interesting, okay. Um, the, the, the vaccine rollout that's been countering the global pandemic, uh, the vaccine's based on petroleum products. If we didn't have oil and gas, we wouldn't have the vaccines. There are so many things made, and you know we're we're talking over over computers, and uh, you know there's a huge amount of plastics used. Yes, there may be alternatives, but at the moment we're we're using petroleum products because we can't just stop and all of a sudden change these new things. I I fully appreciate the arguments, but yeah, it's it's sustainable, and we need to the transition is a movement from one to the other. It's not a switch one off, switch another on. I understand. You mentioned that you've previously been head of the Aberdeen branch of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. Yes. And 
I re- recently read that the Society of Petroleum Engineers has shown a consistent refusal to adopt a stance on climate change and also considers supporting decades of scientific research in the matter to be both a political and a controversial matter, suggesting that the effects of man-made climate change may or may not exist. What is your view on this? And does your involvement with the SPE have an effect on your attempt to move into renewable energies? I'm not aware of that declaration, I must admit. Um, I haven't seen that. Um, this SPE, there's obviously SP International. I'm the chair of the Aberdeen section. Um, we are very much exploring renewable energy, as is SPE. They have Offshore Europe in February, and there's a huge, huge element of his energy transition and sustainable technologies. Our own section in Aberdeen, we hold webinars uh, online. We have one next week, which is uh, developing, uh, it's an oil and gas development in a zero carbon uh, basin. We also have a geothermal conference in February, I think it is. We are about to do our second carbon capture and storage conference in February as well. We're very much aware of energy transition and uh, SPE, even on an international scale, is very aware of it. So why did the SPE make that statement then? It was in 2017 and you've continued to be involved with that. Does that not tarnish your attempt to move into renewable energy? Tarnish my my, my personal attempt. I, I work in both renewable energies and um, oil and gas industries. With your involvement with a company that refuses or institute that refuses to acknowledge climate change? As I say, I'm not aware of that. Uh, I'm not aware of that at all. Okay, moving on. I understand that in your work, you've carried out STEM outreach in multiple schools. Yep. How can we inspire the next generation of scientists to become engaged in the change to renewable energies? Initially, we, we try to get them interested in, in just the STEM subjects, so the science, technology, engineering and mathematics, and, and show that it's an interesting, fascinating building block to move into many industries. The global energy industry, leaving renewables and oil and gas aside because it's all energy, and that includes nuclear to a large degree as well. Absolutely. We encourage the children to see it's a vital part of life. We need electricity more and more and more because we've got bigger and bigger demands. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a, a very fulfilling industry to work in. There's lots of technical challenges. With the oil and gas moving into decline, um, we have a huge decommissioning program globally because we need to make safe all of these production systems that we've installed last 100 years around the world. We need scientists and engineers and creative people to be able to do this and sustainably and with a sensible, sensible price tag, which all needs to be covered. Interesting. Okay. And finally, but last but not least... All in all, are you optimistic? On the whole, yes. Yes, very optimistic. The, the, the developments which are going on around the world is, is fascinating. Every single day I'm reading something new about a new technology which is going to make something a little bit easier, a little bit cleaner, a little bit more sustainable. I, I, I fully think the, the, uh, the transition of the energy mix, um, there's, there's two folds. There are huge developments uh, planned for uh, renewable energy, either offshore wind, onshore wind, all this kind of stuff. But there are lots of uh, local impacts that you can do as well. So that's um, making sure your houses are insulated so you're not using the electricity in the first place, not wasting it. It's old, it's old reduce, reuse, recycle. So if you can reduce the energy consumption to start with, insulate homes, have um, have homes with uh, renewable or sustainable technologies, so solar panels, uh, heat source pumps. Thank you very much, Graham. No problem. Tune in for more episodes from TechFest Talks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.